Welcome back to The Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin Hale. I am the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. It's Wednesday. It's Westminster Wednesday, so we're taking a break from 1 Peter for this one day each week and looking at the Westminster Confession. We've made it up to Westminster Chapter 2, which is titled, Of God and of the Holy Trinity. Surprisingly, there's only three paragraphs. Now, uh, paragraph two in particular is, is long. But why would there only be three paragraphs to describe God and the Trinity when there are ten paragraphs talking about Scripture? Well, in part, uh, what we have to recognize is that the task of putting who God is and, and describing the Trinity, putting that into words, is, is an absolutely monumental task. And sometimes you have to say something, as I believe it's Augustine that's often quoted, we say something to, because we can't say nothing. Uh, but other times, you, you only say what you have to because there's only so much you can say. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. What we're trying to, or the Westminster Divines, we're trying to put into words in, in a way that we could understand who God is and how God is. And at some level, despite Calvin's objections, he wasn't at the assembly, but earlier he had said it was a foolish question to ask what God is. At some level, the, the Westminster divines are, are trying to wrestle with that question. In fact, the, the questions in the catechism ask that. What is God? An answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Part of the problem that we run into is that God is just so different from us, that, that we struggle to, to get it all right. We, we, we struggle to kind of even understand it well. And here they were tasked with putting this into words. And, and so it's a, it's a difficult section, and, and, and it's really just a section where there's just like all of this stuff just piled on. And it does give us a good picture of the God that we worship. But we must recognize the, the difficulty of the task that was set before them. So chapter 2, paragraph 1 says this. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Father, as we look at these words and wrestle with the reality of who you are, I ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit that we may think clear and concise and correct thoughts about you, that we might come and worship you as you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so it dives in and it begins with the most basic confession that we make. 
there is but one only living and true God. This reminds us of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is where everything kind of begins in some ways when we're thinking about who God is. There's not multiple gods. There's one God. And our job is to know him and to worship him. That's what we have been called to. When we say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, we're talking about a specific being, a specific God that we are to enjoy and worship forever. So the the divines aren't positing an idea among others, a God among others, What they are claiming is that there is this one God. And then they make this attempt, and and as glorious and and, and huge as it is, it's still a feeble attempt to describe this one God. And and they, they begin with really broad statements, and then things get narrower and more specific as you kind of work through what they offer. There's this one living and true God. So he is living, he is the true God who is infinite in being and perfection. He's limitless. He's not like us that that are incredibly finite in in every way. He He is unlimited in his existence and in his perfections. There's no lack found in who he is. There is no lack found in in how he is. There is no lack found in what he is. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. He's, He's not like us. Yes, Christ took on flesh, but until he did, he existed in his fullness without flesh, without body. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So again, we're talking about a being that that is so very different than us. And this is why we struggle to put these things into words. He's immutable. That means he doesn't change. He always is as he is. There's great comfort in that for us as we we think about this God. We, We don't wake up one morning and then the next to different gods wondering how is he going to be today. The way he is, how he is, is how he will be. This consistency, this unchangeableness, this immutableness, to use the theological language, should give us great comfort. Because we know how he will be today is how he was the day before. How he will be in time eternal is how he has been for time eternal. He's immense, eternal, incomprehensible. That doesn't mean that we can't understand anything about him. That's not what the idea of incomprehensibility is. The idea there is that we can't understand everything about him. That there will always be mystery. There will always be things we don't know, that we can't grasp, that we can't comprehend about him. 
So it's not saying that he's utterly unknowable. Rather, that we can't know him entirely. He's almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. Nothing limits him. He's not subject to to anything outside of himself. And so he works all things according to the counsel of his immutable and most righteous will and for his glory. He's not bound by his creation. He's not bound by us. He exists apart from us. And therefore, he is most free apart from us. He continues, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Ah, what sweet words those are about how our God is. Yes, it's going to go on and remind us that, that he doesn't leave sin unpunished, but that for those who call out to him, who, who seek him, who, who run to Jesus Christ that he has given for our sin, who, who look to him in faith, what we find is one who is most loving, most gracious, most merciful. His mercies are new every morning, most long-suffering with us. His goodness and truth are abundant. He forgives us. He forgives transgression. He forgives our sin. This is who our God is. And beyond that, he rewards us. This paragraph closes reminding us, though, that that he is just, and, and it even says terrible in his judgments, hating all sin. The reality that that is being pictured here is that if we run to him, we find mercy. But if we continue to reject him, we find that his justice is exacting. The very last phrase, who will by no means clear the guilty, requires some explanation. I'll be brief. The the Westminster divines were using what what we know, or, or, or a precursor to perhaps, what we know is the King James Version. And they're picking up on language here from Exodus 34, 7 and, and other places that, that translate a phrase this way. The, the point of the phrase, when you go back and read it in Hebrew, is that he doesn't leave sin unpunished. That, that he certainly doesn't leave sin and transgression and iniquity unpunished. And so if we remain in our sin, we can expect that punishment. The idea that he will by no means clear the guilty might say a little too much, though we understand what's being driven at here. Because the good news of the gospel is that there is a means by which we, the guilty, are cleared. Namely, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, by his finished work. But the point is, even in that, he didn't leave sin unpunished. 
Christ took the punishment for us. And we received grace and mercy and forgiveness for our sin. This is who our God is. He is a great God, full of grace, full of mercy to those who come to him in need. Might we do that in the name of Christ. Amen.